Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, my text for this morning is 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, beginning with verse 12. Uh, I believe it'll be up on the screen, but I want to read it uh, for us this morning. Uh, it says this. Uh, The unit, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all of its parts are many, they form one body. And so it is with Christ. Uh, For we who were baptized uh, by one spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, and we were all given the same spirit to drink. Uh, Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot were to say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. For if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? Uh, But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. And if all were given one part, where where would the body be? For as it is, there are many parts, but one body. So then, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seemed weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. Now if one part suffers, then every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, then every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. And in the church, God has appointed all, uh, God has appointed first of all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, uh, then workers of miracles, then those who have gifts of healing and those who are able to help others, those with gifts of administration and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But eagerly desire the greatest gifts. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. God. Um, You know, Corinthians uh, is a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul uh, to the Christians in the town or the city of Corinth. And the city is more appropriate moniker than town, for Corinth was located in ancient Greece. It was one of the most important trade cities in history. Uh, It was full of diversity and a very wealthy city as well. And Paul actually lived in Corinth uh, for a year and a half. And in his time there, he went around sharing the gospel, telling people the good news of Jesus Christ. And more and more people began to place their allegiance in Jesus as Lord. And so a church formed. Uh, So after a year and a half of ministry, Paul has a church and leaders built up that he feels like he can then move on to a new city and tell more people about the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, The letter, both 1st and 2nd Corinthians, are written because Paul got word back after moving out of Corinth, he got word back that things weren't going so well in the city of Corinth. 
Uh, in fact, uh, the people there that were facing a number of issues, some very practical issues, some theological issues. Uh, and some of the issues that they were facing were things like division uh, among the community of believers. Uh, there was some sexual misconduct going on, including where one church leader who was sleeping with his mother-in-law, and you thought the Bible was boring. Uh, and believers who were starting to deny the resurrection. And so, and so let me just say here that sometimes church leaders will say something like, you know, we really wanna go back to the early church, to the New Testament church. Uh, and I often think to myself, I'm not sure you know exactly what you're saying when you say that. Uh, because what we find as we read these letters of Paul is that even the earliest believers uh, had all kinds of issues in their community life together. And so what Corinthians does, it reads a little bit like a series of short essays uh, where Paul addresses a problem head on before moving on to the next one. Uh, so Corinthians, 1 Corinthians in particular, is really just a collection of essays in which Paul is trying to address these things that are happening. Uh, and so each essay actually has the same format. Paul, in short order, describes the problem that's going on, and then he offers an argument on how, and this is key, uh, how a proper understanding of the gospel will help to address the problem that they're facing. And so what Paul is actually trying to do implicitly in the way in which he addresses these issues is he's trying to help the Corinthians to see life through the lens of the gospel. And in particular, he's trying to help them to understand and see their life together, their communal life through the lens of the gospel. It's in other words, if we, if we know this and understand this to be true about Jesus, then this is how we ought to live in our lives together. Uh, and that, so that's what he's trying to do every time. Here's the problem, as I understand it, says Paul the author, and now here's how a proper understanding of the gospel addresses that issue. Uh, and actually, if you read Corinthians kind of in one sitting or a couple sittings, uh, then you can actually get a sense of how this book is structured in that way. Uh, so the problem that Paul is seeking to address uh, in, when he's talking in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 has to actually do with their worship gatherings. And here we are at a worship gathering. So let me describe to you some of the things that were going on in Corinth all that time ago uh, that Paul is trying to address. So as they were gathering for worship together, it was common for people to have a, a strong spiritual experience uh, where they would uh, stand up and start praying in an unknown language. Then others in the community would stand up and start sharing uh, a word from the Lord. Now this time in a language that was their own that could be understood. Uh, but before that person was done, someone else would stand up, interrupt them, and declare that they have a word from the Lord. Uh, and, and so you can imagine that if you were standing up, sharing what you felt was a word from the Lord, and then someone interrupted you, this is a problem, right? In fact, put yourself in those shoes, what would you do? You would probably elevate your voice a little bit in an effort to speak louder than the person who has interrupted you, right? I mean, after all, you have this word from the Lord. So, so you have people who are yelling a special word from the Lord. You guys know nothing about that, right? Uh, <laughs> You have people yelling a special word from God while others are praying in own unknown languages and, and it all was actually a bit chaotic. Uh, in fact, uh, a bit chaotic is understating the problem. Now Paul's main concern about all that's going on is, uh, is actually that there were folks that had come to the worship gathering to seek to learn 
and to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and Paul was saying all this chaotic stuff going on simply hinders uh, those who are trying to learn the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, think about those who are visiting for the very first time and how confusing this might come across uh, to them. So they've got all kinds of chaotic worship gatherings and Paul's is a pastoral concern that says, man, for those who are coming to learn or for those who are visiting, uh, this simply uh, will not do. It's, it's too uh, chaotic. So Paul seeks to answer this problem by giving us a metaphor. Uh, and so he addresses this chaos, this chaos and this confusion of the worship, worship gatherings by giving us the metaphor or the illustration of the human body uh, to point us to some important truths. The first thing is he says is he wants, uh, he wants the worship gathering to be a place where the Spirit of God can work and speak through everybody, but do it in a unifying way. In, in other words, uh, can you imagine the division that might happen in a community if people are kind of fighting or, or jockeying for position of who has the true word from God that day, right? And so they're, they're kind of elevating their voices, trying to get, uh, get to a place of prominence. And it was actually starting to divide and corrode the sense of community among them. It was creating division. And so Paul wants to affirm that in fact God can and does work and speak through and use any number of people. Anyone in the community can be used by God to encourage and build up. But, but the way in which the Holy Spirit wants to do that is in a unifying way. Uh, he wants to make that very clear. And so he uses this illustration that just as a body has many parts but is one, so too the church has many members but is unified. So each person is gifted in a unique way and that giftedness is an important part to the proper functioning of the body. Now another issue that was going on as, as they were jockeying for position uh, is they would consider their gift better than the gift of their neighbor. So, oh, I might have this gift and now I'm more valuable uh, than you because your gift isn't as good or cool or shiny as mine, right? Uh, and so Paul's encouragement again is that no one should consider their gift to be better than any other because doing so would be to act selfishly instead of with love for the community. So the purpose of the gifts that God gives is for the building up of the body. Now let me connect uh, chapter 12 with chapter 13. Chapter 13, the like quintessential love chapter uh, read at all those weddings, right? Uh, but if we consider it in context, what Paul is actually doing is after all this talk about spiritual gifts and no spiritual gift is better than another and all this division is happening among you and, and so rather than use your gift to jockey for position and position yourself as better than another, don't do that because that's acting selfishly rather than out of love, right? And then he goes right into for love is patient, love is kind, it is not self-seeking. He goes right in to tell us what the true nature of love actually is. Now practically what this means for us is that uh, every person in the church has something important to contribute and should participate in the community life by giving what they have to offer. Now he'll go on to list some of those gifts. We should need to understand this list is not exhaustive, but rather illustrative of what he is talking about. 
And uh, some of you are like, did Pastor Andy listen to John Watkins' message last week? Right? Some of you are thinking that. The answer is yes, I did. And I thought John did a phenomenal job of bringing, this, bringing out this point last week, that we need to be connected to one another, that we need to realize that we have something to offer to the community. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to build on what John talked about last week and look at this passage from a little different angle than maybe you have heard before. Now there's a lot going on in this passage and we could talk, that we could talk about, uh, but what I wanna do is I want to spend the next few minutes thinking theologically uh, about this passage. So I encourage you to put your thinking caps on and uh, stick with me for a moment as we dive into this, okay? So now the question that, that uh, hits me uh, is, why is Paul using this particular illustration? Now, uh, it's got tons going for it in terms of illustrative purposes, right? It fits the point exactly. Uh, but, But why this and not some other metaphor that might accomplish the same thing? Uh, so I wanna submit to you the idea that Paul's use of the human body metaphor is not just convenient for its illustrative purposes, but actually carries with it in itself uh, rich meaning that Paul is trying to point us to. Uh, So again, stick with me. Let's remember that Paul uh, grew up Jewish. Uh, so, think, so any thinking about human body uh, or human being would have had the uh, Hebrew scriptures, Genesis, he would have had that in mind. And what Genesis 1 and 2 does is it tells the story of creation. And this poetic narrative ends with this beautiful declaration that as God looks over all that he had made, he declares that it is very good, right? Do you remember in Genesis, at the end of each day, God, God said this, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And then on the sixth day, he looks over everything, and he said, it is very good, as he looks over all of creation. And so this, this poetic narrative ends with this beautiful declaration of it is very good. And in this narrative, we also learn that God has invited humanity to be co-rulers with God, to to rule over creation and to rule over one another, but not in a domineering way uh, or a power over way, but rather in a way that would mirror God's loving rule back to the world and to one another. Uh, and, and so, yes, we, so rulers, sometimes uh, we get this wrong idea in our head, power over, right? Uh, but, but what God is inviting us into is to mirror his loving care, his loving rule back to one another and also back to creation. But as it turns out, as we read the biblical narrative, it turns out that we are pretty mediocre rulers, right? Uh, that we have rebelled against God's purposes. And so central to the Jewish mindset, in light of of Genesis 1 and 2 that says, it was very good and you are co-rulers with God for the purpose of mirroring back his loving rule into creation, but we didn't do a very good job, central to Jewish mindset is that God was to form a new humanity where our brokenness would be made into wholeness, right? And so Paul has absolutely this mindset that God, what, what is God up to in the world? He is churning human brokenness into human wholeness. And here's Paul's, here's Paul's particular claim on this, that it is through 
Christ, the true human, that God is now forming this new community. That the new community is centered on the true and sinless human who is Jesus Christ, who was God made flesh, fully God, fully human, lived the human vocation without sin, and so now centered around this perfect one, God is now bringing to, uh, bringing around and building a new humanity who will be churned into wholeness out of brokenness who out of the ashes, beautiful things will emerge. Are you with me? So, so Christ is the center of all this for Paul. For, for Paul, Jesus is right in the middle of it. He's the center of the action, which is why, uh, I don't know if you caught this, but which is why in verse 12, the first verse that we read, uh, Paul says this really curious thing. Let's look at it again. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though, it has, uh, though its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. What? So it, we would expect him to say, so it is with the church, right? Because he goes on to say all this stuff about the church and many parts and one but one body and all this, diff, all this diversity but yet this unity. So why doesn't, in verse 12, why doesn't Paul say, so it is with the church? But rather he says, so it is with Christ. It, it appears here that the church and Christ are inextricably linked. That somehow, and I want you to hear me here, somehow participation in the life of the church is participation in the life of Christ, who is the true human, okay? I told you, we gotta put on our thinking caps. You still with me? Okay, so the metaphor, in other words, what I'm trying to say is that the metaphor goes way beyond everyone do your part and actually speaks to us about the nature of what it means to be incorporated into the new humanity that God is creating in and through Jesus. Uh, you may remember from a sermon several weeks ago, we discovered that being human is not a way to describe how broken and messed up we are, but rather the goal of discipleship is to move us toward humanity that is modeled after Christ. Right? If, if, if Christ shows us the true picture of humanity, then discipleship is not a move away from being human. Discipleship in Christ is movement toward being human. You with me? And so we talked about that and we unpacked that a few weeks ago. So, Je so Jesus was the true human, and so our sin makes us less human. What makes us less human and why we talk about being human as sinfulness is because in our sin, we're losing our humanity, not gaining it. So discipleship is moving toward true humanity modeled after Christ. I think that's a really important concept to grasp. So there's deep, deep significance then when Paul chooses the image of the human body to express what those who belong to the Messiah have now become. I wanna say that again. There is deep significance when Paul chooses the image of the human body to express what those who belong to the Messiah have now become. He says, in belonging to Christ, you have become the body of Christ. So, here's the point. Some of you are like, that was a lot. <laughs> and it was a lot, right? It was a lot. Here's the point. Here's, here's, where, here's how I want to bottom line it. 
When Paul talks about the church as the body of Christ, there is this strong implication that the church is the place, is to be the place where we learn how to be God's genuinely human beings. That when Paul talks about believers as the body of Christ, he is saying essentially this, the church is to be the place where we learn how to be God's genuinely human beings. You with me? The church is a training ground for becoming and living into the humanity of Christ. <laughs> okay? So there's a lot of implications that we could actually work, that we could work out. And I encourage you actually to spend some time this week reflecting on what those might be. But let me point out two that have come to mind. And I want us to kind of just like solidify this in our head and in our hearts. Uh, because, because it has to be both. We have to solidify it in our heads and in our hearts to really capture this. That the church is the training ground, is to be a properly functioning church, is to be the place where we learn how to be God's genuinely human beings. That we move into uh, more the image of Christ, right? Where we move into the image of Christ. That's, that's probably a better way of putting it. Right? That we are formed more and more into the likeness of Christ. But God, in His wisdom, has made it possible through this collective community called the church. Okay? So the church is to be the training ground where we are moved more and more into the image of Christ. Let me pull out a couple of implications. And these are just, again, these are two of probably an infinite possibility of implications, uh, but two that really came to my mind as I was thinking this week. Uh, the first is this. If the church is to be a training ground for Christ-likeness, uh, then perfection should not be expected. Then perfection should not be expected. Um, let me say this, and I don't know if a pastor has ever said this from the pulpit, uh, but I'll say it. <laughs> uh, the church, the capital C church, will eventually disappoint you. Um, you, it is, is quite, it's, well, first of all, it's impossible to live in community with others uh, and not eventually be hurt, disappointed, or frustrated. Uh, the problem is, though, that because the church bears the name of the perfect one, uh, then she herself, the church, the bride of Christ, is often expected to be perfect. Um, but I want us to approach church life with managed expectations. <laughs> Uh, that if you live life with people who are, are being formed in the likeness of Christ, then there's a good chance uh, that at some point, someone will hurt, frustrate, disappoint, say something offensive, et cetera, et cetera. And I think this might be a pain point for many of us who have experienced hurt in the church. But I want to encourage us today, this morning, just by saying this, that, that the church is not a place where perfect people gather to talk about their perfection. 
And if the church turns into that, then I think we've totally missed it. Um, and I'm afraid that sometimes church becomes this place where people pretend to be or feel like they have to portray themselves to be perfect, and then we just talk about all the things uh, about our own perfection or the things that we already agree with and agree on, right? So imagine church where the community is largely homogenous, same economic status, same this, same that, same that. Uh, and then kind of it's largely homogenous in spiritual journey. We're all kind of like in the same spot. Uh, and then we all gather around to just talk about the things that we already agree on. Uh, th- this is, I don't think this is the church that is portrayed or, or imaged in the scripture. Uh, so let me, this is actually a two-part sentence that I haven't finished. So let, let me just say my thing here. The, the church is not where perfect people gather to talk about their perfection. The church is where people hungry for God gather to learn the ways of Christ and be formed by the spirit of Christ into Christ-likeness. That doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but it's theologically accurate, right? So the church is to be a place where people who are hungry for God gather together to learn the ways of Christ and be formed by the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of God is active in our midst, moving us toward Christ-likeness. And and I think that that realization will help us be just a little more gracious with one another as we kind of go about this church life thing together. Uh, You with me? Um, So so the, the point, the first point is the church will disappoint you. Uh, Now, let me put a little finer point on it. Um, This church will disappoint you. But not very often. often. (laughs) And and what I mean to say when I say that is is not like, oh, get ready, it's coming. (laughs) But what I mean to say is that we're a church just like anyone else. Uh, and, And that this is not a perfect church who does not have perfection as its leadership, present company included. Um, And and I know that like, because here's what happens, and I want to be careful here, but here's what happens. Uh, 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 Some folks come to Emmaus and they get so excited because they think they finally found the perfect church. And I I just want to like as gently and as lovingly as I can say, just hang around a little bit. You know, like, you'll eventually see this place isn't perfect, and neither am I. Um, And so, in other words, this church will disappoint you if you're here long enough. Um, I might say something you don't like, that you don't agree with, that you find offensive. You may find relational conflict or difficulty here. You may face disappointment. You might experience frustration. But here's the thing. But kind of recognizing this and then doing our best to work through those difficulties, seek reconciliation and seek understanding allows us all as the diverse but unified body of Christ called Emmaus Road to experience the beauty of God's healing grace. Amen? That when difficulty comes, if we are invested enough to work through it, 
then we can not miss out on the beauty of God's healing grace. Now, I understand that there are seasons of life, and from time to time, there are good reasons to move on and find another community. Uh, I'm just afraid that sometimes we move on too quickly and miss out on the beauty of God's redemptive work. So that's the first point. Everybody encouraged? Good. Let's go to the next one. (laughs) The second point is, since the church is to be a place to learn how to be truly human, our attitude toward humanity should be one of celebration, not suspicion. If the church is where we learn to be truly human, modeled after the the Christ-likeness and the humanity of Christ, then our attitude toward humanity should be one of celebration, not suspicion. Now, this will surprise all of you, but when I was growing up, I always found myself among the popular kids. I know you would never know that now. Uh, But I spent my grade school recesses uh, running away from girls who were trying to kiss me. This is a true story, right? And my mom and my mother is here to prove it. Uh, So uh, I spent my grade school recesses running away from girls who wanted to kiss me. Uh, Junior and senior high was spent playing sports with the popular kids. I was never a top athlete. I don't think I would ever fool anybody to say that. But I was in the crowd of the cool kids. In high school, high school is where I learned uh, to look at those who were different from me with suspicion. Uh, I would roll my eyes at the math club. I would uh, disregard the nerds in the chess club. And even though I was in choir and was in a theater production, I considered myself to be on the margins of those group, of that group, right? Never really one of those kids. As a college freshman, it was me and, my, and three of my friends that were identified by the sophomore girls as being the coolest freshman guys. A trophy I wear with honor to this day. When all four of us were together, uh, we referred to ourselves as the 100% club. This is 100% true, by the way. So we referred, like the four of us were together. Anytime the four of us were together, we were the 100% club. Now, why the 100% club? Because 100% of cool was right there. (laughs) Like completely contained within these four men, the 100% club. Um, And it's funny, and we can laugh about it, but the truth is, is it all sounds childish and a bit embarrassing, doesn't it? But here's the thing, and here's the point I want to make. I think it might be even more childish, a bit more embarrassing when you consider that I took many of those same mindsets into my adulthood. That I would look at people who didn't speak my, the same language as me as, with suspicion. That I felt sorry for people who looked like that or drove that car or lived in that neighborhood. I would see traditions that weren't my own and I would think that they were dumb or had no real meaning. I was operating in the world as though I had never left the halls of my high school. I'd be willing to bet I'm not totally alone on all of that. I don't want you to think that that's where I'm at today. Some of you might say that's a pretty good reason to move on from this community. 
What I want to do, what I do want to say is what God has been stirring in me over the past several years is a growing appreciation for humanity in all of its beautiful diversity. That if, if, if church is to be a place where we're moved into Christ's likeness and Christ is himself the true human, that when humanity in all of its diverse uh, language and culture and expressions is displayed, that me as a person who follows Christ ought to look at that with celebration, not with suspicion, because it's not like me. So I want to say this morning, I want to declare to you that I've come to see that there is sacred beauty in the homeless family doing their very doggone best to make ends meet. And that we get to interact and intersect and get to know these folks through Faith Family Hospitality. I want to say that, that the divine image is stamped on the person who's dancing on the transport bus. You know? You ever been, like, I had this experience, so I thought that maybe that would resonate a little more than it did. But, like, many years ago, I got on this public transportation, and this, this person just started dancing their heart out. And I just thought, you know what? That person is more free than I am. <laughs> And, the first, and, and I was at a time in my life where I was like, what is wrong with them, you know? And I'm just coming to say, see, like, there is, I don't know if I'd ever dance on the, on the public bus, but there's the divine image is stamped on that person. Can I say this? There's infinite worth in the 50-something man who walked into Starbucks as I was writing this. 50-something man. He was wearing skinny blue jeans, black combat boots up to his shins, a mustard-colored sweater, a yellow sweater vest that went down to his knees in the back, giant earrings in each ear, and a black stocking cap. And I used to look at someone like that and, and just roll my eyes, but now, regardless of whatever judgments I might be tempted to pass, I better also realize that this person has infinite worth. And, and isn't that like kind of the baseline for Christianity, for those who follow Christ? It's to say that every person, regardless of how they might portray themselves, is infinitely valuable, one for whom Christ died. <laughs> I might also say this. There's divine beauty when a musician sits down at her instrument to play, or when the artist touches her brush to the canvas, or when friends belly laugh around the dinner table, or when a sophisticated man loses all of his decorum and makes a silly face at a toddler. Or when she speaks her, her native language, even though I may not understand a word. Yes, humanity is broken. There is no doubt about that. But humanity is also beautiful because we bear the image of God. And if we're going to be the body of Christ, I think we could do well to celebrate 
diversity and culture and all the expressions of humanity than to look on with suspicion. Amen? And so the church is the body of Christ. As such, it is the training ground for becoming God's genuinely human beings for the purpose of reflecting God's image in the world and being a prophetic voice to the world as well. And so I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful for the deep and rich truths that are found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this morning, I find my heart uh, rather challenged by this message. And I've done my best, Lord, to communicate it in a way that would make sense and um, that would intersect our lives right here where we are. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would take these words and translate them into the hearts and minds of the people that have gathered here today. And I pray, God, that you would help us in our endeavor to live life together as the church. Um, Recognizing, God, that although we are centered and confess the name of Jesus, who is the perfect one, that we are still being formed into Christ-likeness. And there's still room for us to grow And God, we're thankful for the ways in which you can work in our life in such a way that we can experience Christian victory, that we can uh, experience a a sense of what wholeness might be like. But God, help us to never think that we ourselves have no more room to grow or that our brothers and sisters have no more room to grow. For, For God, all of us can more perfectly bear your image. And so God, help us in our community life together to know and to understand what it means um, to walk in the ways of Christ and to be gracious toward one another. And God, would you also help us as we endeavor to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. God, we love you. And we thank you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.